Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the New Spectator USA website. I'm joined by Daniel McCarthy, who is a regular contributor to Spectator USA and the editor of Modern Age. And we're going to be asking, was George H.W. Bush really that great? Now, Dan, you wrote quite quickly after the death of President Bush, quite quickly because I asked you to do it quite quickly, but you wrote a fairly harsh, I'd say, critical assessment of the president. You're not a great fan of his. I mean, have you found the, 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 the sort of mourning for him this week a bit sickening? I would certainly say it is cloying. Maybe sickening is uh, slightly uh, too much. And it's not just because of George H.W. Bush's own record. This whole idea of several days of national mourning culminating in the shutdown of the federal government, no mail is being delivered. This is quite an unusual and new development. Mm. Uh, I think it began maybe two presidents ago with President Reagan. Reagan, at least, was a world historical figure of a stature that I could see some justification for. Uh, But thereafter, you had uh, Gerald Ford get this kind of treatment. Ford was a mediocrity by any measure. And now George H.W. Bush, who is not just a mediocrity, but an actual failure and disaster. And explain why he's a failure, um, first of all, perhaps on the domestic front and then looking at his foreign policy. Well, certainly for conservatives, George H.W. Bush was a crushing disappointment. This was someone about whom conservatives had very serious reservations when he was, first of all, running against uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980 for the Republican nomination for president, and then when he became Reagan's vice president and subsequently ran for president himself in 1988. So going back to 1980, when he was running against Reagan, he uh, referred to Reagan's uh, tax cutting and plans for supply-side economics as voodoo economics. And so when George H.W. Bush was seeking the Republican nomination for president after having been the vice president in, in 1988, There was a lot of doubt among conservatives. Is this guy really someone we can rely upon when it comes to taxes and the economy? And so George H.W. Bush made a very strict pledge at the Republican convention in 1988 saying, read my lips, no new taxes. Mm. And then he betrayed conservatives. He basically won their votes based on what he had said, but he went and raised taxes anyway. So on that front, he was uh, you know, quite bad for conservatives. He also, the first uh, Supreme Court appointment that he had a chance to, to make, uh, he wound up putting David Souter on the court. David Souter wound up being uh, a Republican appointee who actually voted uh, with the Democrats quite often, especially on cases involving abortion, for example. Mm. So social conservatives, as well as economic conservatives, really had reason to regret uh, George H.W. Bush's presidency. And then on a whole variety of fronts, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, increased immigration. He uh, signed into law something called the Americans with Disabilities Act, which sounds very nice you know, on, on, its, on the face of it, but in fact wound up being uh, a tremendously bureaucratic uh, law which imposed huge burdens on American businesses. I mean, he is recognized for these sort of, you know, humanitarian sort of good branding exercises, the Thousand Points of Light program. The, these, these are sort of feel-good things. But, but in, to your mind, that seems to be the, where the Republican Party started to go wrong, perhaps? None of that feel-good stuff was taken seriously at the time. You know, it was much later that uh, Theresa May referred to her own party, the Conservative Party, as being the nasty party. Mm. But Republicans at the end of uh, the 1980s had started to get that kind of a uh, reputation. Now, with Ronald Reagan himself, you know, the, the Democrats and liberals who opposed uh, Ronald Reagan, they called him the Teflon president because no allegations stuck against him and also sort of uh, attempts 
almost impugn his character to say he didn't care about America and so forth. None of that was able to stick. Ronald Reagan was a person that people connected to at a kind of human level. Mm. With George H.W. Bush, uh, that was not the case. People thought him heartless and out of touch. And so when he talked about a thousand points of light, when he talked about a kinder, gentler nation, he was really playing against type there. And he did it very unsuccessfully. But it's extraordinary, isn't it, looking today at the... Tributes. I mean, he obviously was a, a, he was kind to people around him, it seems to be fair to say. He was kind to people who were loyal to him, who were personally loyal to him. One of the things he did, however, when he became president was to get rid of the Reagan loyalists, to get rid of anyone who had supported Ronald Reagan in 1980 over himself. Um, so he had a vindictive side as well. And I don't want to just be, you know, sort of attacking George H.W. Bush on absolutely every front during this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but, I, but uh, right now when you have such a one-dimensional portrait of the man uh, being uh, put out there by a very sort of lazy and sentimental media, mm. I think it's very important to actually correct the record a little bit on all of these fronts. The man had his admirable qualities. He was faithful to his wife. He served the country, you know, courageously in the Second World War. But as a president, he was disastrous. And his humanitarian side, I think, is vastly exaggerated. But it's very odd, isn't it? Having, having been a, a one-term president and having left office not especially loved, there is this intense nostalgia for what he represented, this sort of idea of a, a wasp America and a, a certain nobility that's gone now. And obviously the references that's in terms of Trump's vulgarity. What do you think, how do you think his personality has changed? Is it, is it just because of Trump? Is it just because of this idea that politics has gone to gone to the dogs now. No, and I think even the wasp nostalgia is uh, somewhat misunderstood. Really, the thing that people respect about George H.W. Bush is that he was the last president of the World War II generation. Mm. And he represents a kind of... Uh, competence and manliness and uh, confidence in the country uh, that the baby boom generation just never had. And when you look at the presidents who came right after him, if you look at Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, they seem like much smaller and kind of less self-controlled kind of kinds of characters. Uh, they just don't seem to have the almost soldierly quality that you could find in George H.W. Bush at times. Similarly, Barack Obama is a president I think many Americans uh, would rank much higher than George W. or, or even perhaps uh, Bill Clinton in some ways, maybe on a human level, if not uh, on, a, on a sort of professional level. But even with Barack Obama, there's a sense that he wasn't uh, serious, didn't have the gravity that someone like George H.W. Uh, did have. Mm. Um, so I, people feel a little bit nostalgia for not just George H.W. Bush, not just for wasps, rather, but for, uh, for a generation, for an America that has uh, disappeared now. And let's talk about Trump himself. Trump, President Trump has, has you, after the funeral of John McCain, which became a sort of exercise in which various establishment figures would talk about how disgusting Trump was in comparison to a hero like John McCain, the Bush family, perhaps to their credit, have said, we don't want that to be like this. We want Trump to come to the funeral. And it's been much more of a Trump is sort of seems to be communicating with this, the old establishment better than he has done before. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, or at least the old establishment is doing a better job of communicating with him. I think the McCain funeral and everything around it left a bad taste in the mouth of many people, mm. uh, many old, old, old-fashioned old Republicans. Even many old-fashioned Republicans who may not like Donald Trump nonetheless saw the way in which McCain's death was co-opted and used as an occasion for uh, attacking the president as being something in rather poor taste. And so with the death of George H.W. Bush, I think there was a sense among Republicans, even those who are not fans of the president, that this was simply not the moment to make anything about, about uh, Donald Trump. And is it possibly that, you know, Trump has become normal in a sense. He's not, the, the, the outrage against him is, is it's lost some of its uh, energy. 
Yeah, there's something to be said on two sides of that question. So first of all, I'm not, I'm not sure Donald Trump was ever as abnormal as his opponents uh, like to claim. Mm. But yeah, of course, it's been two years now. Donald Trump has settled into office. He has a better idea of the role that he is responsible for. And similarly, I think the Republican Party and the conservative movement have become uh, much more comfortable with Donald Trump than they were. Uh, I mean, many conservatives, many Republicans were as shocked as anyone uh, when Donald Trump won in 2016, when he first won the nomination and then won the White House. And uh, it's taken a while for, you know, so-called never-Trumpers and even people who were, you know, not never-Trumpers, but who were certainly reluctant uh, supporters of Donald Trump mm. to come around and grow comfortable. And I think that's now taken place. And at this point, the Republican Party is thoroughly Donald Trump's party. But is it possible that perhaps, you know, Trump likes to be recognized by the establishment? And, and is it possible perhaps that he can now be co-opted by them? And, that, you know, if the, if the Bush family warms to Trump, perhaps he'll start to feel warmer about the Republican Party that, that they represent. The Well, I'm only speculating here, but I don't think that's going to be the case. Okay. I think uh, Donald Trump's views on the Bush family were settled uh, in the 1980s when he saw, you know, the record of uh, George H.W. and when he uh, saw, you know, the United States uh, being taken advantage of by other countries in numerous ways. And uh, I think Donald Trump still understands himself as being sort of the antithesis or the, the antidote, as it were, to uh, a variety of diseases that George H.W. Bush unleashed upon the country. I mean, the reason I am so hostile or so critical of George H.W. Bush is because he was the first president after the Cold War, right at the end of the Cold War, when the country really did have as close to a blank slate as possible, and it really had a chance to set a new course for itself. And instead of doing that, George H.W. Bush set us on a course of hubris, of becoming a kind of policeman to the world, of becoming um, almost in some ways a post-national country, a country that didn't take itself seriously, didn't take its citizens' interests as being its primary uh, you know, sort of national objective, and instead wanted to be a, um, a kind of incipient world system. I mean, George H.W. Bush himself used the phrase New World Order as the kind of thing that he wanted to build. Mm. And it seems to me that most Americans want to have a country of their own. They don't want to have a world order, a New World Order, or you know, some even newer world order that they have to be responsible for sacrificing for and building. Uh, they want an order that, you know, obviously is free enough that the United States can prosper, and they want the United States to be an example unto, unto other nations. And in an emergency, when you do have a Nazi Germany or a Soviet Union, Americans understand the need to sacrifice and to defeat that mm. entity. But they do not see a need for America to be, you know, the policeman standing on the corner of every uh, hotspot around the world. And you don't think, I see that Reagan was standing up to the Soviets, but you don't think that that sort of rot started before Bush and that, that, that you know, the idea of America as, as the, the global policeman has been, had been brewing for a long time? No, uh, quite the contrary. So with the Cold War, even though there were misadventures like the Vietnam War, for the most part, uh, the United States had to be somewhat restrained in what it could do, precisely because it had this great superpower rival that it had to worry about. It could not afford to get mixed up in every little, you know, sort of puny military conflict all around the planet. After the uh, Cold War, however, the United States was basically unchained. And at that point, the United States could have chosen to act in a kind of self-restrained and responsible way, you know, kind of as a, as a mature country that was, you know, confident in its power. Or it could have decided, which it did in fact decide, to uh, embark upon imperial misadventures in the name of a very kind of vague humanitarianism and, you know, a kind of ideology of human rights that wound up being something that uh, was extremely difficult to export to the rest of the world. And that's what George H.W. Bush did. He basically set America 
on a course toward endless conflict mm. uh, and endless unsuccessful conflict as well. So I think there's a huge uh, uh, responsibility that falls on his shoulders. Do you think then the first Iraq war is as bad a mistake as the second Iraq war? You know, uh, the more I thought about the details of the first Persian Gulf War, the more I realized George H.W. Bush managed to somehow do exactly the wrong thing in two different directions. First of all, people forget this, but a week before Saddam Hussein annexed Kuwait in 1990, Hussein had a meeting with the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. If you can believe it, we actually had an ambassador to Iraq in 1990. Uh, Iraq was not a pariah state at that point. Mm. So he meets with April Glaspie, the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, and he asks her um, what the U.S. Uh, position on Iraq's conflict with Kuwait is going to be. And Glaspie basically says that it's none of America's business. And then a week later, Saddam Hussein goes and he takes over Kuwait. So uh, on, there's one sense in which George H.W. Bush, by failing to draw a firm enough, you know, sort of a bright enough red line at that point, uh, actually made the uh, Iraq war more likely to happen to begin with. Mm. Then after the war, the war itself, you know, we go in there in 1991, it takes, you know, a week or so, and uh, it seems like a pretty successful conflict. But in the aftermath, George H.W. Bush again sends mixed signals where um, people in uh, Iraq, uh, the so-called swamp Arabs, they get the message that they should rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein and that America will support them in this. And it turns out that we had no intention of doing that. Mm. So as a result, those who rose up against Saddam Hussein after the Persian Gulf War got slaughtered. Well, then we have this. We have Saddam Hussein still in power. George H.W. Bush wants to contain uh, Saddam Hussein, so he's imposing a no-fly zone. He's doing other, uh, you know, doing a variety of sanctions, which wind up being quite a crushing burden on the Iraqi people. All of this is a very unsuccessful strategy because basically you had a war which seemed very successful on the battlefield, but afterwards, in terms of the political settlement that arose, it was not settled at all, and there, there was this kind of unfinished business, which then leads directly into what you saw with George W. Bush after 9-11 mm. uh, and his second uh, Iraq war. But I, I suppose the hawkish position would have been that he should have fin finished the business the first time, and then it would have all been okay. But, you know, I think you can argue it either way. You can argue either that we should have gone all the way to Baghdad in 1991, which I think, simply logistically speaking, would have been impossible. But you can at least make a case in principle that that might have been ideal. So why, why logistically speaking, would that have been impossible? Uh, well, we had a coalition that probably would not have held together to go into Iraq. We had a degree... There were a lot of Arab countries that were not on board with what we were doing, but that were relatively restrained in their protest. You might have had, you know, um, OPEC or other forces really lodge a protest. You might also, I mean, the Soviet Union did still exist at that point, and it was mm -hmm. in the process of unraveling. But a U.S. that was seen as being, you know, sort of uh, extremely uh, active at that point might have provoked a reaction from, you know, other parts of the globe that yes. would have, you know, sort of frozen, so to speak, the, the decomposition of the Soviet Union. So any number of things, plus the simply the number of troops that would have had to be mobilized, et cetera. Mm. Um, you know, what we did in Kuwait was on a relatively limited scale. We would have had to have a somewhat larger scale to go into Iraq proper. So, you know, but you can argue that in principle it would have been good to get rid of Saddam Hussein right then and there. You can also argue that we should never have gotten into the Kuwait-Iraq, uh, you know, sort of conflict in the first place. But what George H.W. Bush did was actually sort of the worst of both worlds. We got in and we didn't finish the job. And we also sent mixed signals about the settlement that kind of wound up creating a decade-long, you know, sort of stasis in the region, which mm. then, uh, you know, became a flashpoint uh, in 2003 with George Bush's son. So it was really a, a disaster, strategically speaking. Uh, similar to Afghanistan, in a way. Similar to Afghanistan, in a way, I suppose. 
but in many ways worse. I mean, with Afghanistan, we know what we're dealing with, where the Taliban will almost certainly reclaim the country as soon as American forces leave. Mm. American forces have been in the country now for 18 years. We are fighting Taliban fighters who were not even born when the invasion first happened. Mm. Uh, some of our American troops uh, have no memory of that uh, you know, initial invasion because they were only you know, in sort of knee breaches at the time. It won't be long now before we have Americans who were not born at the time of the conflict who are serving there. And perhaps even you might even have the first death of a, of a U.S. soldier who wasn't born when the Afghanistan war started. That's right, yeah. And that, yeah. I, I, it's possible that that's even already happened. And if it hasn't happened yet, I'm, I'm sure it soon will. Mm. Um, so there's no end game there. This is just an endless sort of festering sore. And there's no sense of urgency in Washington, D.C. among the supposed foreign policy experts to resolve the situation there in any kind of permanent way. They see it as being, you know, a kind of acceptable lifelong injury that we can, we can continue to have this presence, continue to have, you know, a dozen or a hundred Americans die there every year, and that it's, you know, uh, simply an acceptable price to pay. But I don't think the American people see it that way. I think they see this as something that is extremely damaging to their morale. But a lot of people hope that Trump would, this was part of the sort of Bush family legacy that Trump would reverse. And that, but that doesn't seem to be happening. No. And it's clear that Trump's own instincts are in favor of getting out. But all of the advisors he's surrounded by, including the professional military men whom he seems to, if not respect, then certainly heed up to a certain point, they've all uniformly told him to stay in. And he may also, you know, unfortunately make a political calculation here, which is that as hopeless as this cause may be of democratizing and liberalizing Afghanistan in the long run may, may be, that if he's the one who pulls out, then he's the one who will get blamed for the inevitable collapse of the country afterwards. Let's, let's look forward to in uh, maybe 20 years' time. I don't think Trump will live for another 20 years. But how will people think about Trump in 20 years' time compared to how they think about H.W. Um, Bush now? Well, you know, it's interesting to look back on Ronald Reagan's death, which was in uh, 2004. Reagan was actually, certainly the left, certainly the Democrats did everything they could to make him a polarizing figure. Now, mm. he was never as polarizing as Donald Trump. Ronald Reagan always had, you know, a pretty broad base of support among the public. Nevertheless, you had Iran-Contra, you had a number of scandals, you had a number of things that various forces were able to make the most of in order to make Reagan, uh, you know, not a, not a um, uncontroversial figure. But a lot of that uh, kind of fell by the wayside after he died, and he was remembered in a, you know, fairly warm way by even people who had been opponents of him back in the day. You wonder if that will apply to Donald Trump, and you tend to think it probably won't, that the mm. hatred Donald Trump's enemies have for him uh, you know, goes beyond all reason and will follow him beyond the grave. One of the things I worry about, you know, you have a lot of leftists and Democrats and others saying that Donald Trump has done something dangerous by uh, talking about Hillary Clinton's mis misbehavior and saying, lock her up. But there's no real move, uh, and there never really seems to have been one, to actually put Hillary Clinton in jail. Mm. Whereas I can very easily imagine that after Donald Trump leaves office, there are leftists who will, you know, try their damnedest to put Donald Trump behind bars. And that, I think, is an extremely dangerous attitude for them to have. I think we'll stop it there. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a Spectator Moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. Mm -hmm.